Lord. We stand forgiven at the cross. Amen. What a powerful message of that song. And what a way to begin. Let's, let's begin our time in the Word with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for being a God who has revealed to us everything we need to know to live the life that we need to today. Lord, I pray that what you've real, revealed to us in, in the text that we study today would have the impact on us that it's supposed to have. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's turn to Revelation chapter 1. Um, and are our screens working? Two? Two minutes. All right. We can go two minutes without the, the screens, right? That's not a problem. So uh, uh, I'm sure there's some technical difficulties. By the way, have you ever had a week where you just felt like Satan was attacking you? Have you anyone ever feel that way? That was me this week. I, I, I'll tell you, just one thing after another, one little hit after another, and you say, wow, what's going on? And then I think, it must be something that we're doing at the church, uh, that uh, we, maybe we're doing something right. Right? And uh, have you ever, I felt that way back when we were in, in uh, Romans chapter 2, and we had to hit some of the things that are very pertinent in today's, topic, in today's world, and as we're talking about sexual immorality and some of those kinds of things, preaching a message that is very countercultural, and that's when my water heater broke, the morning I'm supposed to preach it, right? And, and just th those kinds of things, and I've had that, uh, that kind of a situation this week, and uh, it's, it's hard, but it's exciting, because that means we're doing something right, right? We've, we've got something important to do, and that's what we're doing. So welcome to our new series on the, the book of Revelation, entitled The Eleventh Hour, as we're looking into the revelation of the things that are uh, that are coming. Now last week we read about John and his divine revelation, this divine visit that he received from Jesus Christ. And I want you to think back to the very first time that John and Jesus came across each other's paths. John was a fisherman, right? And he's with, fishing with his brother uh, James and they're fishing, they're mending their nets. And the only thing we read about the story, I, I think there are more details, but the only thing we read about the story is that Jesus walks up to them and, uh, and says, uh, drop, your, drop your nets, come follow me. And the Bible just says they dropped their nets and they followed him. That's pretty cool when you think about it, right? And, and uh, uh, they're, here they're following Jesus and they did exactly what, what uh, Jesus asked them to do. Um, and uh, then... He was with Jesus then from that point on. So he was with Jesus when he was performing his miracles. He was with Jesus when he was teaching the multitudes and just astonishing them with his knowledge, his knowledge of scripture, his knowledge of the way things just work in reality. And he was also with Jesus when, they, religious, when the religious leaders grew, grew jealous of all of Jesus' popularity. He was with them, uh, with Jesus, when they plotted and falsely accused him. And, and it was in this era of his life that John uh, records of, of, of a conversation that took place. And even though we're going to stay in Revelation 1, um, this is not working. So is that, so if we can, usually that means we have to unplug it. and It's like two things. Am I right or am I right? Is Satan attacking us today? All right, let me try it again. And one more time. And a th third time's a charm, ready? Hey! Oh no, that's even worse. Oh, no, it's okay. Hey, well, I remind you, Jesus preached to the multitudes and never once used PowerPoint. Isn't that, isn't that true? So, uh, so whether we get it or not, um, here, let me give it a shot. 
No, that's all right. Um, um, but he, he, if you keep your finger in Revelation 1, I'll read um, from... Uh, oh, there it is working. All right, very good. So uh, uh, John 14, 1 through 3. We read this. And Jesus was speaking to them, and he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so Jesus had this conversation, and he's reminding them, or telling them, of uh, two new pieces of information. First, um, he said, and this part still isn't working. There he goes. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you. He's saying, I'm leaving. Now imagine how someone like John who felt so close to Jesus, would feel when, when Jesus saying, I'm going to have to leave. No, Jesus, don't go. We're, we're enjoying you. We want you to stay here. And then the second thing, uh, if we could uh, go forward to the next slide, is he said, I will come again. I will come again. So he's reminding him, I, I will go, but I will come again. And then go ahead and put it on the blank slide, the next one there. Remember then that Jesus was, or John was with Jesus then when he was taken away. He was with Jesus when he was beaten, when he was tortured, uh, and when he was crucified. He saw Jesus put into the grave. He saw the stone rolled over the grave and, and, uh, and a large, large stone there to seal, to seal it in. And he was with Jesus in the heights. He was with Jesus in the low moments too. He was also with Jesus when he saw him in his resurrected, glorified body. After he rose from the grave on the third day, he spent time with Jesus in his glorified body on multiple conversations. And, and, uh, and then the very last time that John was with Jesus, Jesus gave him the great mission again and to the disciples to make disciples of all, of all nations. And then he was carried off into heaven on clouds with that promise to return again someday. Now, let's transition. We think what's happened from that point in John's life, he has faithfully preached that gospel from that day forward. The Bible says he's a faithful testimony of, of, of Jesus Christ and of the word. He goes and he preaches, and he's preaching the same thing. He's preaching Jesus is coming back, and he's preaching Jesus is coming back. And, and, and he does that. He continues to do that, and, uh, and yet nothing's happening, right? Nothing's happening. And... and uh, and so he goes all through um, the area now known as Asia Minor or Turkey, and he's preaching the gospel. And what does he get for it? Let's uh, go ahead and uh, advance one slide. He gets exiled to this little small island. Hey, wh where, where can his influence be? What can he do? Why is he here? I'm sure that he felt alone. And then Jesus, the same Jesus with whom he had walked those years of his life, appears to him appears to him. He sees him on this island in a vision and, 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 and Jesus gives John this detailed, awesome revelation. And now John is, is sharing that revelation with us. But before he can even get to the contents of this revelation, he's like bursting out with praise. In fact, even in the greeting, which is as far as we're going to get today, we're going to, as he gives a greeting from heaven to us, and in this greeting, there's so much praise in there that, that he, he fits all of this praise and worship into this greeting. So let's read verses 4 through 8. Let's advance. Uh, you'll see the verses there to uh, verses, verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, 
Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Wow, what a powerful passage. Do you see how the praise is just coming out? He hasn't gotten past introductions here. Like, this is, this is, this is the greetings that I'm bringing you from, from the throne room. I'm bringing you this, this greeting. And in, the, in this, he can't say the name of God. He can't say the name of Jesus. He can't say anything about them without breaking into some adjectival expressions. You know, explain who these people are and what they did, right? And... and and, and there's just the praise. Now, I love this passage because, um, um, and, and it's okay if I get a little, a little technical, a little geeky today. Because I, I, when you study this stuff, there's so much great stuff. And you can only share a little bit of it right here uh, in a setting like this. But, but if, I'm going to share some of that with you. One of the things I love about this passage is that it's very easy to, uh, to outline this passage. In fact, I love it when I don't have to, uh, to uh, figure out the outlines of the contents of a passage. Because John uses an, an old Hebrew literary structure here called a colophon. Anyone ever heard of a colophon? Then I'm getting really geeky. Okay, one person. All right. So, uh, uh, so, so to, uh, so I'm getting a little geeky here today, but that's okay. A colophon is a Hebrew literary structure to help outline things. And what you do is you take a phrase, and sometimes you'll you'll tweak that phrase, make it a little bit abnormal so that it catches your attention. And then you say it at the beginning of a of block of information, and then you say it again at the end of that block of information. And that's exactly what we find here. For if we skip ahead um, um, here, we see in verse 4, we read him explaining who God is. And he, he calls him him who is and who was and who is to come. And then if we look at the end of this passage that we're looking at today, verse 9, go ahead and go to the next one. It says, who is, talk about the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. And so these, this use of repeated phrases become like a parameter, saying this section comes together. We, we see this a lot in the book of Deuteronomy, where it'll say, these are the statutes and judgments. Then you hear all these statutes and judgments, and at the end it'll say, these are the statutes and judgments. Helps you know what blocks of information go where. And so we're looking at this block of information here, and, um, and, um, and, and in this parenthetical block of information, we see this section is to be re read and understood together, and it begins and ends with a, with a description of God's power over time. He, he is, and he was, and he is to come. And, uh, and that's the, the description of God. And I think it, it's what's odd about it is usually, because this is actually a pretty common description of God. Here we read about this about God. But normally you hear it, who was, who is, and is to come, because that's how we think chronologically, right? We typically think past, present, future. But this one starts in the present, the God who is, then the God who was, and then the God who is to come, both times. 
Um, so it, I, find that, I find that interesting when I, when I look at that. But I think it's important that we see that the description is talking about God's power over time. And, and you might ask, why is that important? Well, it's because by the time we get to the book of, of Revelation, Christ's disciples were probably wondering, well, when is Christ coming back? When is Christ coming back? I mean, he promised that he was coming back. Uh, and I think we'll soon see that God's perspective of time and our perspective of time is very different. And our, our, his ways are higher than our ways, and I think we're going to get a glimpse of his ways. Now let's go back uh, with this in mind. Let's go back and reread the passage a little bit at a time. Let's break it apart. So look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Let's start and uh, go ahead and advance it to the next, uh, the next thing. Let's start with the idea of the seven churches. Now remember that we talked about how the the number seven is a sacred number. It always represents something that's sacred. Um, in fact, that's why God created the, the week the way he did, with seven days. That's God's number. So whenever you see the number seven in Scripture, it usually refers to something that has to do with God, right? And usually, specifically, something that has to do that with something sacred. That's why um, the, the Bible says the seventh day is holy. It is sacred because it's the seventh day. The word for seventh is the same word for Sabbath. Because the word Sabbath just means seventh. And then the seventh year is holy. Right? And, and, uh, and, and then even the, the Pentecost is based on seven sevens. So you have 49 days. So that, that 50th day, the day of Pentecost, becomes a holy day. Why? Those, those, those things are important. So then the, the number seven becomes like a little red flag that says, all right, watch out. You're, you're treading on some sacred, something sacred here. What's sacred in this context? The churches. I think it's important to understand that God created the churches and that churches are sacred in that sense. Remember, Jesus said this is the one thing that's going to wage war on hell and win. The church. So people who get that idea that uh, you can just have a relationship with God and ignore church, that's not, that's not necessarily true. Let's continue. It says grace and peace, or grace to you and peace. These are, these are greetings from the, the throne of God. Grace is how the Gentiles would greet each other. They'd say grace. The Jews would say peace or shalom in Hebrew. Right? And so he's saying grace to you and peace. Greetings from whom? From God. Uh, so if we advance to the next slide, the, what's interesting here is we have greetings from the throne room of God. Now let that sink in for a moment. How many of you have ever received a phone call from someone that you were really excited, like, I can't believe this person's calling and going to talk to me? Anyone ever receive a phone call like that? That's nothing compared to God. Think about it. God's like, hey, I'm sending greetings to you right now. That's an amazing thing. And, uh, and so we've got these greetings from the, the, the throne room of God. Well, it's from whom specifically? Number one, greetings from God the Father. What does it say? It says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to, to come. Number two, greetings from the seven spirits who are before his throne in verse four. Now, what's this talking about? In fact, uh, on the next slide, I'll say two, two views of this. There, there are two different views on what is this talking about, the seven spirits. The first view is that it's the Holy Spirit. 
A couple, a couple uh, pros and cons to this view. No, number one, um, Jesus is mentioned next in the text. So the fact that it mentions God the Father and then it mentions Jesus afterwards, that would make this a great text to argue for the Trinity, right? So if this is the Holy Spirit, um, and the idea is that, that the idea of seven spirits is really the sevenfold spirit and that there's some sense in which uh, the Holy Spirit has seven dimensions to him or something like that. Um, it, another argument is that uh, there were seven, there, there seven la lamps on the golden lampstand that's inside the, um, uh, the, the Holy of Holies. Right? The, the downside to this is that it doesn't say sevenfold, it does say seven spirits. Right? Also, there, there's nothing else in Scripture that delineates that the Holy Spirit has seven aspects or seven dimensions to his nature. I can't find that anywhere in Scripture. So is it possible? Maybe, but probable? I don't think so. The second possibility is that, that it's actually talking about seven angels. Now, potentially the same seven angels that, that are sent to the seven churches. Now, a couple positive things or why, why you might believe that is in, in uh, Revelation 8.2, if we could look at that. Revelation 8.2, we read, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So when we get later to, to in the book of Revelation, we're going to see angels with their trumpets. And, and, uh, and, and it says here that there are seven angels who stand. This is a present continuous tense, which means this is their habit. This is what they do. This is where they, it's not that they're just standing in that moment. But this is where they continuously go and stand. So there's this idea that maybe the seven spirits are talking about those seven angels. So a couple other positive uh, reasons for believing this. Uh, the book of Enoch. Now, I'm not claiming that the book of Enoch is, is supposed to be in this, in this book. But it is quoted by both Peter and Jude. And so I don't hold it to the same level of scripture. But that shows that there's some credibility to it. And in Enoch, first Enoch 20... Um, it lists seven angels that are constantly before the throne, including Gabriel and Michael. As well as the fact that there are seven angels in the, in the next context. In chapters 2 and 3, seven angels go and share a message with the churches. But then the question is, well, where's the Holy Spirit in that? I mean, if we have a glimpse of the, of the, of the throne room of God, where's the Holy Spirit? And why isn't he sending us greetings? And uh, I think a good argument for that could be made. Um, it's because the Holy Spirit is already here. He's already with us. He doesn't need to give us greetings from the throne room because he's dwelling inside of every single one of us. I don't know about you, but I, that, that floors me to even think about. Anyone else with me on that? So my conclusion uh, when you look at it is, is when you look at the first option, it being the Holy Spirit, I don't think that that's the case. I would say that um, I believe that it's the angels. However... Um, if you disagree with me on this, we can still be friends. All right? This is not one of those things that's going to separate us. But I will say this. The, the point is this, that these greetings are coming straight from the throne room of God. We get a glimpse of the throne room of God that, that is now, and, and, and this is a greeting being sent to us. And the third greeting is a greeting to Jesus Christ, if we can bring that up on the next slide. A greeting to Jesus, or reading from Jesus Christ. Let's read the verse again, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the, the kings of the earth. Now that's a lot of head knowledge so far, right? Last week we talked about how that knowledge has to go from our head to our heart, out to our hands. 
let's transition from the head to the heart for a moment and just marvel at the fact that the, that the, the throne room of God broke history and entered in that moment and said, I have greetings to the seven churches, which represent all of the churches, from the throne room of God. That, that should floor us to have access to God at that level. I mean, if I were talking to anyone in here, I would hold that, that as an important conversation. And, and if, if someone came to me, oh, uh, Dave, um, you got a phone call. I, there's very few people in this world that would interrupt the conversation. I would probably say, all right, I'll give, take the number, I'll give them a call back. Right? But if there were certain people that were really high up there, right, I might say, excuse me, I need to take this call. And you would probably forgive me for that, right? You would probably forgive me for that, right? Okay, um, so, whew. All right, good. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you what, I don't care. If I'm on, on the phone with any human being on the planet, if I receive a phone call from God, I'm hanging up. Right? Because there's, there's no more important conversation than whatever that conversation is going to be with God, the creator of the universe. And this is what's going on. That is, that's big news. But I think it's interesting, too. I mean, uh, when we look at the description of Jesus... Look at what it says. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And that brings it to what I'd like to talk about, a, a big portion of what I'd like to talk about today, and that is the three descriptions of who Jesus is. The first one we find is he's a faithful witness, which means that his word is trustworthy because he came straight from the throne room of God. His word is trustworthy. But usually when you find the word faithful witness in Scripture, it's in reference to the Son being a faithful witness of God. What does that mean? Because the Son was made by God. It is declaring the glory of God all the time, and it is consistent. It's, it's a faithful witness. How many of you, if you had to bet, now we don't bet in church, right? But how many, if you had to bet whether or not the sun was going to rise tomorrow, how many of you would say the sun does come up tomorrow? All of us, right? Why? Because it's come up every day. It's that faithful, constant witness. Even if you don't see it, it's there. We might not see it on a day like today, but it's remind, I'm reminded of the, of the old adage, of the sun, no matter how dark your day may seem, the sun is always shining in outer space. So, this doesn't bring a lot of comfort on a day like today, but it's true nonetheless. He's a faithful one. The second thing we, we read, that he is the firstborn from the dead. I love this because four words tells a whole lot. Uh, first of all, it implies that he died and he rose again. It implies because it was, he was dead and now he was born out of that. He was a firstborn from among the dead. He was, so he died and he rose again. That's huge. That's the gospel right there. The idea, too, that he's the firstborn means that there are more to come. That he was the first one, and now, because of him, others can be born again. Others can come to life again. Others can, can no longer be bound to the, the fate of death. And there you have the gospel, don't you? He's the firstborn from the dead. And then the third thing, he is ruler over the kings of the earth. Ruler over the kings of the earth. There is no authority higher than Jesus Christ. Nobody. Why right, look at this. And can I get a little geeky with you one more time? I found two really interesting things when I'm looking at this. Two things I found really interesting. And, uh, and so I'm going to share them with you. Number one, 
John's description of Jesus follows the chronological pattern of his description of God the Father. Did you notice that? It follows. In fact, if you look at them again, faithful witness, um, when is he the faithful witness? Right now. He is that constant. This is present tense. He is the faithful witness. So that's the present. So if we could uh, hit, hit the next thing. Or, I'm sorry, the past. Then the firstborn, um, actually, yeah, I should say present, sorry. It's a mistake on the thing. Boy, that, that, that is the devil, if anything, right? <laughs> firstborn from the dead. When is that? That's referring to what he did when? In the past. When he died on the cross and paid for our sins and rose from that grave. It's from the past. And then, ruler of the kings of the earth, would you say every king of the earth right now would claim that they're a follower of Jesus Christ? Then what is this talking about? Past, present, or future? Future. Talking about the future. Following the same description. The God who is, who was, and who is to come. And Jesus is this. He was that, and he will be that. Do, do, do you see a little bit of a connection there? And I think that's interesting. And I think the second thing that I find even more interesting is that all three of these descriptions... Faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, they all are found in the same psalm. Psalm 89. And they all go back to Psalm. And I don't, I don't have time to read all of Psalm 89, but if you want to keep a finger here in Revelation 1, you can turn to Psalm 89. I want to read a little bit of it. Look at verse 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. See, this whole, this, whole pro, or not pro, this whole psalm is actually about the Davidic covenant, we call it. It's a covenant that was made to David. And what was that covenant? That God was going to take someone from his descendants, someone from his seed, was going to become a king and have an eternal kingdom. What a promise. And this, he was going to have an eternal kingdom. And this future king, the word for a future king is Messiah, or anointed one in, in, um, in Hebrew. Um, and this future king is called these things in this, in this chapter. In fact, look, uh, skip ahead to, to verse 36 and verse 37. It says, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. It's like... This kingdom, this Jesus, is going to be just like the faithful witness in the sky, that constant faithful witness in the sky. If, if, uh, if we skip ahead to um, verse 27, what else we read? Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see what he's getting at? The firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so we look at the big picture here. If we just go, go ahead and look forward to the black, uh, the black screen there. Big picture is this. And, and, I, and I, as we go into the book of Revelation, there's a lot of details. And so it's easy to get lost in the, in the woods so I want, or in the trees. So let's look at the whole woods here. When we look at the big picture here, God promised David that he would create an eternal kingdom. And he would do it in David's line. Jesus is the king of that kingdom. He is the king of that kingdom. He died, yes, but he rose again. And he's coming back to establish that kingdom. 
in a sense, the entire message of the book of Revelation is found right here in the greeting. But Jesus is real. He's, he's coming back. He's the king. He's setting up an eternal kingdom. Jesus, then, will come, and he will conquer all of the kingdoms of men and will establish an eternal kingdom. Amen? You say, Pastor Dave, that sounds far-fetched. That's why we started with why in the world we can believe this book to begin with. It sounds far-fetched, but it's the truth. And I would die on it. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't say I, I would risk my life on it. I'm saying I am risking my life on it. Because I dedicate everything to the fact that I believe that this book is true. This is what God had predicted also, by the way, to connect us to what we had just studied in the book of Daniel. This is what God predicted all the way back in, in uh, Daniel chapter 2 via Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? We read this. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. What are we saying? And you might remember the, 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 the tower and the representations of all the empires of the world and then this rock was going to come and smash the, the feet of it. That's, that's Jesus. In order to, to set up an eternal kingdom, he is going to tear down all of the others. Now, I'm not saying we should, we should be against every government. In fact, governments are a gift from God. Amen? I didn't think I'd get any amens on that. <laughs> not after this week, right? But in reality, governments are a gift from God. We are to respect them, right? And at the same time, we have to be careful that, that our loyalties don't become, come to the point where they supersede our loyalty to the eternal kingdom. Because every kingdom, that includes the United States, at some point is going to have to dissolve and say, we bow to the kingdom that is headed up by the king. And every nation on earth has to go through that process. That's what, was, what, that's what he was talking about there. So we see this right in the description of who Jesus is. And here now John turns to not only what Jesus, who Jesus is, but what Jesus did. Let's look at the second half of verse 5 and verse 6. It says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here we have three descriptions of what Jesus did as well. What did Jesus, uh, what did Jesus do? Number one, he loved us. That's what it says right here. He loved us. Interesting that this is coming from a man that all the other people said he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was his nickname. If anyone knows what the love of Jesus is, it's John. He says he loved us. I'm sure he was probably not the one who was keen on that name because he knew, oh, if you just understood, Jesus loves every single one of you just as much. He loved us. Number two, he made us, or actually, he washed us from our sins. When he died on the cross, it wasn't just to be a good example, though it was a good example of self-sacrifice. He died on the cross because his blood was the requirement for our sins. He died on the cross for us. washed us from our sins. 
you know what? You can try to be good. You can try to turn over a new leaf. You can try all those things. But without your sins being forgiven, every sin you've ever done would be held on your account when you stand before God. Every sin you've ever done. But Jesus paid for them all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left us a, a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He washed us from our sins. And number three, he made us kings and priests. What does that mean? These words are, are pregnant with meaning, right? The, 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 he made us kings and priests. I believe that the word kings has to do with our relationship to people, and priests has to do more with our relationship with God. So let's take them one at a time. First, kings. What does it mean when he calls us kings? That means we're going to reign with him in that eternal kingdom. Think about that for a moment. He made us kings. Now, he's the king, right? Now, we're not, I'm not talking about superseding Christ by any stretch. He's going to make us kings in his kingdom. Say, Pastor Dave, that sounds, that sounds like you're, 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 you're touting something too big there, right? It's what the text says. Did you read it too? It says, he made us kings. He made us kings. We're going to be kings. He is the king. In fact, when, like when 1 Timothy, when, uh, when Paul says, 1 Timothy 6, I think it is, where he, Jesus is called king of kings and lord of lords. You know, we're part of that, and his, we're part of his title, in a sense, because he's the king of what? He's the king of kings. Who are we? We're the kings. He's the king over the kings. And over the, we'll be the kings over the nations of the world. That's, a, that's an amazing thought. The second thing is, priests, we're, uh, we're priests. That gives us direct access to the presence of God. Remember what priests were? The priests were the ones who would take the sacrifices into the temple. They did it from the east. So I'll come over here. They would come into the, into the east and they would offer the sacrifices that would represent what Jesus was going to do for the blood of all the people. And then they would come and they'd have the labor and they would wash themselves, and, and which represents the, the washing of our sins. And so we have the same thing what we find in the New Testament. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then you go into the holy place. What's in the holy place? You have the altar of incense, right? Which represents that direct access we can have to God. Then the high priest would have access to get past the curtain of separation, can enter the throne room of God, the representation of the throne room of God, right then and there and have access to God. As priests, we have that ability to go to God. I remember witnessing to a Catholic landlady of ours when I, when I was in seminary, and we witnessed to her all the time. And I just remember one day when, she's, when we were talking, and we'd talk about Bible stuff all the time, and, uh, and she said, you know what, I don't think I'm going to go to the, the, the priest to confess my sins anymore because I think I, I think I can take my sins directly to God. And I said, bingo. You got it. Because the Bible says that we are the priests. Th those who shepherd over the individuals, those are called shepherds or pastors. Uh, they're not called priests. Why? Because we're priests. We have that direct access to God. It shouldn't surprise us when, oh, you know what, hey, hold on. Uh, we're receiving a message from heaven. Right now, John gets that message for us. You realize what this means? It means that our prayers reach the ears of Yahweh. Wow. Wow. And there's a lot of things, even this week, as I watched the news, there are a lot of things I would love to say to a lot of leaders and positions. But they would never hear what I have to say. But you know who does? Their boss. Their boss listens to me. And he listens to you. 
we should be praying for our country right now. We should be praying for our, we should be praying. I think that would change the way we do everything. And all of this information, all of this we get from John's greeting. Think about that. All this from John's greeting, his description of the ones who sent the greeting. Then he announces in verse 7 what we've all been waiting for. Look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Jesus said he was coming back in the same manner that he left. How did he leave? Keep your finger here in Acts 1, verse 9 through 11. This is how he left. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as they went up, behold, two men uh, stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Just as you saw him go, he's going to come back. You saw him taken up in clouds, he's coming in clouds. That's what brings a little bit more meaning to this text when, when we behold he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. This is the second coming. We call this the second coming of Jesus Christ. What is John saying here? He's saying this day is coming. It might not seem like it, but it's coming. Two things that teaches us about the second coming and, this will, and then, we'll, uh, then we'll wrap it up. Number one, very simple. It's real and it's coming. It is real and it is coming. Every eye will see. The second thing we see is this. It will be very public. What does it say? Every eye will see him. Go ahead and show the verse one more time. Every eye will see him. In other words, this is not talking about the rapture. Right? That's a private event. Not everyone's invited to the rapture. We'll talk about that later. If you don't know what the rapture is, don't worry about it. We'll get there. This is the second coming. This is a very public event. And everyone's going to see it. Everyone's going to see it. In fact, it goes on to say, even they who pierced him. Even they who pierced him. Who's that talking about? The Jews. Like it says in Zechariah 12.10, that it was the house of David that pierced him. Right? It was predicted it would be the Jews. So the Jews are going to see him. By the way, I find this very interesting. You know why? Every, I mean, not every, but Gentile nations have been trying to destroy the Jews since the beginning. Haven't they? Since Genesis 12, when God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. There, we have had nation after nation, from the Philistines to the present, from Haman to Hitler. It's, they have gone after the Jews. Why? Because there's, this is a reminder to us that there's something beyond us. We can't set up our own kings. We can't set up our own religions because there's a true religion. And it comes out of an actual group of people. And they, they have fought against that forever. And, and uh, I know our, our, our country has had a long history of friendship with Israel. I'd say in the last decade, that's, we're seeing a lot of our leaders that don't respect Israel as well. Isn't that true? But we see God's promise never fails but I'll tell you what, the same God that promised Abraham that those who blessed his descendants would be blessed and those who cursed his descendants would be cursed is the same God that just sent you greetings. And he's alive. And this is real. And this is public. 
This is a very public thing that is going to take place. It's coming to everyone. The last thing I want to show in the verse says, and all the tribes of earth will mourn because of him. What does that mean? These tribes, that means everyone in the world, all groups of people, are going to see him. They're all going to know that it's true. This is not a local event. This is a, this is a worldwide event. And how are they going to respond? They're going to mourn. If I could put words into the mouth of every tribe and tongue and every nation, that's going to happen when he comes back. I, I would say, quite simply, I would say, oh, stink, he's real. Is that okay to say? Say stink in church? I can't believe it. We've pretended like he's, we've fought his people. We have, we, they've tried to annihilate the Jews. They've done all sorts of things. And all of a sudden, they're going to realize, oh, man, he's real. And here he comes. And they're going to mourn, wishing that they had accepted him when they had a chance. They're going to mourn. And then, God, or, and then John closes this, sec, this section with the words from God in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's the Alpha, that's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. He is the Omega, that's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He is the beginning, he is the end. God is God over all things, God is God over all time. Four quick applications as we go. We'll wrap it up, and here we go. Number one, don't think for a second that history has gotten out of control. History has not gotten out of control. God is still in 100% control. How many of you watched the news at all this week? I could tell because your, your faces. Yep. It seems like the world has gotten out of control, doesn't it? It hasn't. It hasn't gotten out of control. God is still sovereign. He is in total control. And I'm telling you, don't despair when you see a lack of justice in politics. Don't despair when you see, when, when you see uh, the kingdoms seemingly going wild that are in existence in, in the earth today. Because guess what? Every single one of those kingdoms is going to have to go anyway. Every one of them. So don't think for a second that history has gotten out of control. Number two... Don't mistake God's patience for weakness. See, God, God has got overall time. Now, and you know how time changes perspective the more you have lived it? Like, remember, if you can remember all the way back to kindergarten when your teacher was punishing the behavior of the class and so she would make you sit with your head down for, for a minute? Remember that? Wasn't that like an eternity? See, when you've only lived six years or seven years, <clears throat> a minute is a long time. But by the time you're old enough to be the teacher of that class, that minute is way too short. <laughs> you need at least three minutes, four minutes to catch a little, you know, just a little grasp of sanity back, right? And then by the time you're my age, a minute is nothing, right? And, and by the time, well, I'm not going to mention that who's older than me, but um, the, our sense of time changes. Now imagine a God who has been here forever, will be here forever. But God uses the word soon, and I think, that's not, you know, I, I feel like the guy from uh, Prince's Bride. I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> but I'm the one who's wrong. Because I have this really limited perspective. I'm just a blip in time. God's eternal. He's the God who is, who was, and is to come. 
his sense of time is right. Mine's wrong. And, and so, so don't mistake God's patience for weakness. When we see people getting away with stuff, when we see the world getting away with stuff, when we see political corruption, we see the nations warring against each other, we see horrible atrocities being done in the name. In fact, I read a statistic that more people have been killed by their own government than all diseases combined in the last hundred years. And look at that. Wow. That's out of control. It's not out of control. That's the patience of God right there. But he's coming. And when he does, they're going to say, oh man, it's real. We banked on, on him never coming back, and here he is. And they'll mourn. Number three, live in light of the end. Live in light of the end. I'm talking about the eternal kingdom. We rule, literally. When we look at the, the end, and it's very easy for us to get caught up in despair and caught up in, in all sorts of things and, and maybe even start going with the world because we're afraid of what the world can do. Don't worry about that. Live in light of the end. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I want to be there at the end when Christ is saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. If I can have that day, I don't care what happens between now and then. If I can have that day. Live in light of the end. Think about that. We're kings. We're priests. That means we have access to the throne room of God at any point. And the, I know that we don't understand this point yet. Because if we did, we would have more, more prayer meetings break out all the time. I'm not talking about scheduling something and coming in once a week. I mean, that's awesome. I love it. I'd invite everyone to come on Wednesday if you're free. I'm, I, I think we would be breaking out into prayer meetings all the time. You'd be, oh, this is what's going on in my life. Oh, you know what? Let's take this to the throne room. We'd be looking for excuses to go back to the throne room of God, wouldn't we? Well, that's living in light of the end. And that's why I, the, the fourth point is actually a sub-point of, of this, because it really is living in light of the end. And I would say this. Pray like you have access to the Almighty God. Why? Because you do. And that's, that, that should change the way we live our lives. By way of invitation today, I just want to say, you know what, there might be some in here who would have to say, you know what, Pastor Dave, I don't know if I would be counted amongst the kings. I don't know. I, I know that, I believe that Jesus died on the cross, but I, I don't know, I've never accepted Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. I want to tell you, right now is the time to do that. Oh, I'm, I'm worried what people think. If you're worried about what people think, then you're not ready. You don't understand who God is. Because if you knew who God was, you wouldn't care what other people think. If you knew who God was. But if you're ready, today is the day. Say, I accept Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. I believe that he's the firstborn from among the dead. I believe what he did. I believe who he is. I believe he's a faithful witness. And I believe that he will be the ruler over all the kings of the earth. Do you believe that? And you're ready. And in just a few moments when we sing, I'm going to ask you to come forward or you can go right to the back. There's some men and women with a little lanyard that says, ask me. You can talk to them and they can show you from God's word how you can know for sure you have eternal life. I also want to say, to those of you who would say, Pastor Dave, I, I know I'm saved. I, already, I know that. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind. I've already said that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Are you living in light of the end? Are you living in light 
of the fact that we are priests who have access to God? Are you living in light of the fact that God's intentions for us is to become kings in his eternal kingdom? Or are you worried too much about the kingdoms that are going on around us right now? And if that's you today, I'm going to ask you to come forward. No one's going to bother you. No one's going to interrupt your conversation with God. I'm just going to let you come up here and have that conversation with God. You willing to do that? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as I pray and then we'll...